This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jay Rosen is on assignment this week, so I'm joined by Professor Karen Woody for this week in FCPA. Some of the stories we look at are, is compliance the happiest profession? A report on SEC enforcement activity for fiscal year 2021. A couple of stories on supply chain and compliance issues. What does ESG mean for the SEC? Commissioner Crenshaw makes some remarks we review. Can corruption be chalked up to psychic revenge? We explore that topic. We look at mitigating cyber risks. We look at the most recent uh, climate change, or rather global summit on climate change, and what are the lessons learned for the compliance practitioner and lessons they need to put forward into their compliance program. 2021 saw the SEC break all whistleblower awards. We take that up. We look at diversity at the top of corporation and how classical Athenians define corruption. All this and more on the Happiest Profession edition of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay Rosen is on assignment this week, so I am joined as special guest co-host, Professor Karen Woody, for episode 278 for the week ending November 19th, 2021, the Happiest Profession edition. Is compliance the happiest profession? Are you passionate about compliance? Well, we're going to talk about that in the context of a couple of articles and take a look at some other stories. So, Karen, uh, welcome back as a special guest host. Thank you so much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here. So, Karen, uh, our first story is just that. Uh, Amy Bernard Bond, writing in Compliance Week, uh, wrote about uh, compliance being the happiest profession it's in the context of a survey that Compliance Week runs annually inside the mind of the CCO. And one of the key findings was that 95% of compliance professionals found uh, satisfaction in their jobs. Um, I would probably opine that if you didn't love teaching, you wouldn't be in academia being the son of a professor. Uh, I understand that. So I assume you really enjoy what you do, but I don't think many professionals feel that way. But when I got to the compliance profession and and kind of stumbled into it, uh, I found really a way to wed my love of being a lawyer with actually doing good inside of a corporation. And I didn't always feel that way as a general counsel or in the general counsel's office. So this is really not a surprising finding to me. Uh, Anything that struck you about this? 
Yeah, I thought this was a great article. I was I was sort of hoping that there could have been some comparative. Uh, you know, what are those numbers for someone who is maybe a practicing attorney or, or something that would be compliance adjacent? Such that I would have just appreciated to see if this was a, mm-hmm. a major outlier or just if everyone's feeling better about their jobs these days. I don't know if that's the truth. Um, but, no, I thought this was a really interesting article. I really appreciated what she said about um, the gender gap um, in, in that, that section. I think, um, I think she's right on. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a place to work and to feel like you're doing good in what you're doing. So I, I thought this was a great article. One of my observations about this profession, Karen, is that uh, there's a large number of female compliance professionals, and that number is increasing as more and more move into uh, the workforce. Uh, I'd always thought it was because it's a relatively new profession, uh, at least it's a separate corporate discipline, so that uh, either... um, Established professionals didn't want to go into it, or it created opportunities for new new entrants into the market, if that's the right phrase. But it seemed to me it seems to me that the gender gap is less in the compliance field than even I saw in the in-house compliance world. And I know you were in private practice as well. No, I think that's right. And maybe I wasn't clear about uh, I wasn't in favor of a gender gap, but I appreciated that she's pointing out that you're right. I think compliance has less of a gender gap. That's interesting, your point about it being a bit of a new profession, and so maybe it offers opportunities um, that that are outside of maybe a traditional path. And so for that reason, it allows for different types of candidates to to take advantage of that. It's a really uh, a good point. I, I think she... Um, aptly, uh, you know, summarizes all that. And I do think this notion that, um, where she talks about now this ability to be remote, that also maybe helps um, with certain women working from home um, and that compliance chefs maybe allow for that as well in ways that other professions don't have as much of that flexibility. Karen, we had an interesting report on SEC activity for fiscal year 2021. Tom Gorman and SEC Actions reviewed it. What did you see or what did you find interesting uh, in this report? Right. So this is the Cornerstone Research and the NYU Pollock Center had their annual SEC Enforcement Activity Report, summary of what has been happening in 2021. Um, I, they note that, you know, there's, there's uh, a drop in enforcement actions um, this year and that that maybe is not overly surprising, but it was the lowest number of cases that have been brought since 2014, which... Uh, maybe is a little bit surprising, um, and they said it's also 15 years. Sorry, 15 percent lower than um, 2020 um, up to date. So I thought that was interesting, and, and I one a query, you know, what the reasoning behind this is. If we're just in a different period and, and timing in terms of what um, when enforcement will ramp up or not. Um, another point from this article I thought was interesting was uh, this notion about cooperation. And there are a few other um, key statistics here where they talk about um, 58% of the actions that settled this year noted cooperation. And that is um, somewhat consistent, but I still thought that 58% seemed uh, a little bit low. I'm sort of surprised that 40% of the defendants here didn't mention anything about cooperation. And that point, I think, will be where there could be a delta between 
this year and maybe future years as we see different enforcement tactics and this maybe heightened um, aggression from the SEC that maybe will spook people from cooperating um, or who knows, maybe it ends up being the opposite effect, that more people are willing to cooperate because they don't think they're going to be able to get away with it after all. But that, that driver and that statistic I thought was an interesting one. Karen, that was the point I really wanted to raise with you because I know you have uh, defended companies in SEC actions. And what I really wondered about is, is what is cooperation? Uh, so if you supply documents as requested, whether via subpoena or informal request, and you sit down and meet with the commission, uh, you certainly defend your client and advocate for their position. Is that cooperation or is that not cooperation? Or is cooperation saying we're going to open up the kimono and wherever you want to look, we're going to let you look? Or is it something different? It's a great question. You know, they're, you know, the agency across the street there at the DOJ has a much clearer process and, you know, policies about what it means, definitions about what cooperation means. Maybe in some ways a little less uh, clear on the SEC side, but um, I do think a lot of it is informal cooperation before things really ramp up. Obviously, before there's a Wells notice or anything that seems formal, that's when we're talking about cooperation. And honestly, I think that's how these things end up not going sort of all the way to to a, a very formal, um, you know, uh, enforcement type situation. So it's a good question. I mean, I think um, it's worth thinking through that and maybe even asking the people who issued this uh, report how they denoted this in the survey um, or, I mean, in this, uh, to to have found this this data. But I I have to imagine it is something where they acknowledge certainly some back and forth with the agency um, and being, you know, not having any adversarial position, not hiding documents, not um, pushing back on... um, on, on the demands that the SEC might make. That said, I mean, there's still you still need to be an advocate and a lawyer for the company, so there always is a little bit of give and take. That comes down to things like even negotiating over how broad the search will be over your databases, things like that. I, I still think that's a cooperative stance, um, and I think that that probably would uh, include, that, that would fall under the, the guise of cooperation, even though there certainly is some advocacy happening on behalf of your client. Karen, our next uh, couple of articles is around supply chain and compliance. And one of my observations about the pandemic was ideas or things that have been circulating for several years, 2018, 2019, even into 2020, uh, really got exponentially sped up during the pandemic. And I think supply chain compliance was one of those. So 10 years ago, no one looked at supply chain compliance. Five years ago, the DOJ started to say, formally, you need to look at supply chain. But really, last year, we saw some big issues around supply chain. And there it was U.S. companies trying to import products, whether it was personal protective equipment, whether it was losing um, suppliers and vendors in China or other regions because of COVID, local COVID outbreaks. And the supply chains were greatly disrupted. Uh, now um, we have logistics log jams everywhere. And Dick Casson, in his article, really talked about uh, the times he's seen corruption 
in the logistics side of things is when there's scarcity, scarcity of product, scarcity of logistics transportation, scarcity that can lend itself to people trying to cut corners. Uh, and so he highlighted that as as current risk in the supply chain. Mike Volkoff went a little bit different direction and talked about, yes, there are problems, but just because there are problems doesn't mean you can't solve them. But he looked at it in the context of, uh, do we now need to onboard suppliers as we did last year to get PPE or, or other scarce items in an expedited manner and maybe cut corners? And um, it really drove home to me the message that I advocate there's a five-step approach to onboarding any third party, whether it's a supply side, whether it's sales side. And that's basically business justification, a questionnaire, due diligence based on the questionnaire and evaluation of the due diligence, uh, compliance terms and conditions in a contract, and then managing the relationship. And what I thought Mike really highlighted was uh, what I try to say, which is simply because you cannot fully do one of those five steps doesn't mean you have to say no. It simply puts more pressure on other steps. So Mike suggested, for instance, if you can't do your full due diligence evaluation, either because uh, the company hasn't been in business very long or you need to expedite um, the process, you can still uh, increase your risk management strategy by managing the relationship more closely. Instead of doing a full-blown audit at the end of the year, you can do testing of invoicing or other payment issues, you can have your business representative meet more often with the vendor uh, to talk about compliance, to talk about any issues that may come up. And I really appreciated his point that um, there's a variety of tools you can use in the entire third-party risk management process, and they all work in concert. And if one works less well, uh, because of particular circumstances, it doesn't mean you have to say no. It means you just have to manage that risk some other way, more closely or more strongly. Uh, but all of this, I think, is going to lead to a much more robust uh, view and oversight by compliance of the supply chain. Uh, so we had yet more remarks from uh, SEC, and this time we have from Commissioner Crenshaw remarks to a PepsiCo PWE conference, and it was around ESG, and uh, first of all, if, if you know what that conference is, maybe you can enlighten uh, our listeners, but uh, what did you see in these remarks that interested you, was new or different, or is this just really recitations of the same we've heard from Commissioner Crenshaw? Right. Another set of remarks. It does seem like that's what the commissioners do all the time, just make speeches uh, day after day. Uh, so this was, you're right, at the PepsiCo PwC conference, which is, um, from what I understand, a tradition that she says has been going on for 18 years, this conference. And um, the, um, the audience was essentially controllers, accountants, and financial professionals and so for that reason, I think that dictated really the message that she was given, given that that was the, um, the audience. So she focused really on this idea of internal controls and the role of internal controls as we all try to muddle our way through figuring out how we do ESG properly, how we do it correctly, how we uh, verify and obtain um, reliable data related to ESG risks. 
Um, she really focused on three main areas of ESG uh, and then how internal controls can play a role in each of those areas. And she started, interestingly, with cybersecurity. And I know that cybersecurity does, she says, falls under the S&G buckets of ESG. But I do find it rare these days when you have a discussion about ESG that doesn't start with the E, that doesn't start with climate risk, with that being sort of the uh, the biggest part of maybe the triangle, um, and S and G sort of being uh, along for the ride. So in this case, she really did. She she switched that a little bit and said she's starting with cybersecurity, and as I said, she considers that to fall under the S and G categories, um, and really talked about how that is you know cyber intrusions are going to be one of the biggest risks to companies. <laughs> Sorry, hang on. <laughs> pause for my dog's bark. Um, that'll be one of the biggest risks to companies going forward. Uh, she then discussed, of course, climate issues uh, and how we identify and measure climate risk. And then finally, she talked about um, this idea of digital assets and the risks associated, she said, related to governance issues when companies um, are purchasing um, assets with corporate cash or somehow... Uh, accepting digital assets as a form of payment, just getting in the space of using um, cryptocurrency or other digital assets. And obviously, all companies need to consider their internal accounting controls for each of these areas. So uh, is it something new? I don't think so, because of course, no one says anything of, of uh, you know, and there aren't any hard parameters or very obvious guidance from this. If anything, it's just a reminder to keep thinking about this and start, you know, and, and for companies to be on, on notice about these things. But without a lot of, um, like I said, guidance or even really that many of, of guardrails of how to go about that. But just, again, another admonition to be thinking about these things. <laughs> Karen, I haven't followed the Securities and Exchange Commission nearly as closely as you have. And although I was aware of sort of major speeches, particularly around FCPA or other white-collar and criminal enforcement issues or civil enforcement, I guess, from the SEC side, I don't know if there are just more commissioners speaking or I'm just noticing more commissioners speaking because I'm paying attention more. Uh, do you have an opinion on that one way or the other? It's a good question. We could probably pull uh, the the speeches because they're all on the website to see if the number has gone up. It does feel that way, but I do think it's because we're all waiting, you know, on tenderhooks here to figure out what they will say. We're all just, you know, they promised a lot. We're waiting for the climate disclosure requirements or the human capital. You know, we're waiting for guidance, and so I do think. Every time they make a speech, it's news <laughs> all of a sudden. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure. It does feel like there are, there are more speeches these days. We're going to have a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more on This Week in FCPA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Karen, next up, we had an interesting article from Richard Bestrong writing in the FCPA blog. And frankly, he had a take on corruption that I had not really thought about. He cited to the example of a Swiss banker, I believe, who uh, engaged in bribery, corruption, and money laundering, was caught, convicted. Um, But the banker's excuse was, well, I was promised a big pay raise and I didn't get it. Um, And Richard actually tied that into his story. His story was a little bit different, but he felt like he was entitled to the extra money that he garnered through uh, his own kind of FCPA uh, journey. And it really got me thinking, years ago when I first started, the kind of conventional wisdom was that 80% of the people were going to do the right thing just because that's the way they were wired. 10% of the people, that's the reason you have internal controls to make sure they do the right thing. But 5 to 10% of the people, they just, you couldn't stop them. They were going to figure out a way to either defraud the system, engage in bribery and corruption, or some other nefarious activity. And I've always wondered, uh, how do you kind of suss those people out? How do you weed them out? It it seems to be very difficult in the hiring process uh, to figure that. And, you know, if we took Richard's story or this banker's story, they didn't start out that way. Uh, that, you know, as with all fraudsters, it's not one step, it's a series of steps until step over the line. And once they step over the line, they then can justify that uh, and cont- for the continued conduct. Uh, and so it really got me wondering, how do you kind of weed those people out? Or, or more importantly, how do you prevent them from coming into your organization through, you know, whatever manner, uh, direct hire, uh, lateral hire, consultant, whatever it may be, um, I don't really have a good answer for that. Uh, but if if people are engaging in that kind of activity, not because they feel they're entitled, but because, frankly, they're pissed off at the company, that's a, le- a level I'm just uh, really not sure how compliance or HR even begins to think through that. Yeah, I mean, it's that's it's tricky to get our, our head around that. Um, it's similar to, you know, the concept in torts, which is, you know, you can never foresee or you can never foreseeable that there will be criminal activity. That's always going to be sort of outside the zone of things people expect because it's antisocial behavior in theory. And so uh, th- that just reminded me of that there's only so much you can set up a system to prevent certain things. But when it's so outside the box, maybe how, how do you catch that? I don't know. <laughs> well, I read an article today that really shocked me really shocked me that it said that 70 million Americans, and I can't believe that number's that high, have something in their criminal background history which prevents them from being hired. First of all, I found that number just stunning. That's nearly a third of all Americans, or or maybe 25%. But as a former tort lawyer, I'm extraordinarily sensitive to the issue of uh, if you hire, just like you said in tort law, if it's foreseeable, that someone engage in a tortious or other action, uh, then you, Mr. Company, are on actual notice that, and you're liable. And so I have great sympathy for companies that want to have a criminal background check because they want to see if someone uh, has engaged in such behavior. But if they haven't, uh, you can't pick that up. And on, on the other hand, 
Should a criminal conviction as a youngster for drugs or teenager or drunk driving or whatever it may be, uh, something short of a, a capital offense, really prevent you from entering into the workforce? And once again, I don't have a good answer, but um, I just saw that as a defense lawyer for a lot, a lot of cap companies. Um, next up, some Debevoise Plimpton lawyers wrote in NYU's Always Great Compliance and Enforcement blog about mitigating cyber risk. What did you see there, Karen? Right. They were reporting on this um, fairly recent Treasury announcement about a new set of sanctions against um, ransomware uh, actors um, and, and people using certain currency exchanges in order to um, uh, to facilitate their ransomware transactions. So what this, you know, of course, dovetailed with um, a FinCEN uh, advisory on ransomware and the use of the financial system in order to facilitate ransomware payments. Uh, and that one came out in 2020. But they incorporated some of the ideas behind that. Um, and so it sounds like the updated advisory uh, adds two new financial red flag indicators that financial institutions need to be aware of. And both of these were somewhat um, new to me because I'm not as much in this space. So it was interesting to read and learn about this. The first was uh, they needed to be aware of transfers involving a mixing service. And mixing service, or sometimes called mixers, are defined as websites or software designed to conceal the source or owner of, of the virtual currency. Um, and so I guess there's data, and FinCEN certainly has data that indicates that this type of software or these services are used by ransomware. Um, uh, so that's, that's where ransomware is housed. Um, and then the second um, red flag indicator they said were encrypted communications or porter portals. So they call this communications with ransom recipients um, that are often conducted through these encrypted networks such as Tor, T-O-R, or some other unidentified web portal. So it's an interesting, you know, again, it's clear that uh, Treasury, uh, FinCEN, OFAC uh, as well are not, are not sleeping on this. In fact, this um, alert from Devavoice has some great takeaways uh, about how to work with this and how to create a, an effective compliance program. They noted that OFAC itself has highlighted five essential components of a compliance program related to cybersecurity, um, and those include management, commitments, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing, and training. And none of that should be new to any listener of this podcast. It's certainly not new to Tom. Um, but it's, it's good to know that OFAC is going to hold companies to this and to, and to know that they expect this from companies related to cybersecurity risks. Um, the alert also talks about, you know, thinking through other uh, major takeaways here. Is that they, they mentioned um, the prioritization of attribution, um, so figuring out who is the ransomware actor uh, and that that becomes tricky. And so there needs to be some due diligence done and to figure out who the attackers are. Um, and then also the other uh, things that, that were takeaways, they talked about external parties and their requirements. And external parties they, they mentioned here are things like in, in insurance companies, financial institutions, but also people like the ransom negotiators, all of those um all those institutions, all those players in, in, the, in the scene 
will potentially be violating U.S. sanctions law. So they have to make sure that you are coordinating among those people uh, and everyone is aware of what the, the laws are surrounding dealing with ransom uh, ransomware actors. Uh, and the last thing they point out, which again it shouldn't be new to many of us here, is that there's this thing that they, they mentioned transparency with law enforcement, which I do see as a sister maybe to cooperation. This idea that you um, allow for the FBI or other law enforcement agencies to do uh, the work in order to figure out what happened in the attack and uh, do whatever is necessary to prevent um, a similar attack. So it's an interesting, again, sort of helpful overview of where Treasury and uh, where Treasury is in terms of regulating this, but also how to help companies establish and maintain um, viable compliance programs around this and, and hopefully to prevent these types of attacks. Uh, Karen, our next story touches on uh, many of the themes we've had in this podcast. And let me start with, uh, you mentioned the E and ESG is usually talked about. Well, this story falls into uh, that directly, but I thought it had some other interesting points that uh, touched on some of our other topics. And this comes to us from Lawrence Heim at Practical ESG, and it's uh, his take on the Glasgow two-week climate summit with some key takeaways uh, that he thinks uh, will influence the debate over the next six months or so. Uh, there were two that really uh, were kind of tied together. The first, corporate ESG and climate data reliability is important. So that's internal data is not only uh, you have to document, but you have to be able to back up that documentation through uh, um, an audit process or other ways to assure investors or the government and I tied that to standardized accounting and disclosure for climate and ESG, which is still a, an open question and indeed one that um, uh, many companies are, are struggling with. And they're waiting for SASB or ISSB or the SEC or, or someone to, to give them some guardrails. But there was a couple of others that struck me. Uh, and his first point was prepare to transition to a transition economy. And I thought that really encapsulated what I've seen from COVID-19 and the pandemic, which we moved from disaster to recovery, to business continuity, to business as usual. And, you know, COVID-19, worldwide pandemic for 18 years, business as usual. Insurrection, January 6th, business as usual. Uh, and you kind of, you the thousand-year freeze in Texas, okay, business as usual. What are you going to do in the next unforeseen disaster to get back up and, and get running? Uh, and I think every compliance professional needs to think about that. But then one specific area was around um, offsets and carbon trades. And I follow this a little bit, and it's really the Wild West. Whatever you think of oil trading, Whatever you think of those guys, they are pikers compared to carbon trading. And it, it's unregulated and it's nascent, uh, which means there's a lot of room for <clears throat> flexibility uh, if uh, your moral values uh, tend that way. Um, but many companies are going to have to engage in this. And whether they go to a broker, whether they do it internally, whether there's some sort of government exchange, uh, compliance is going to have to step in and put some internal controls, policies, and procedures around this because we've had several uh, oil trading cases, uh, DOJ Antitrust, CFTC, 
uh, and others have looked at oil traders uh, for a variety of angles. And of course, we've had SCPA cases around traders. So as carbon offset, carbon trading and offsets become more important, compliance is going to need to understand that, understand who your traders are, what they're trading, who the customers are, who the end users are, because if it involves energy outside the United States, it's a state-owned enterprise or a foreign government directly. So uh, a good summary from um, Lawrence Hyman, as always. Um, one of the big stories, I think, Karen, over the last uh, few few days has been the Whistleblower Awards from 2021. Once again, no real surprise because we've seen this all year, but um, the SEC broke all whistleblowers awards. We we cited to a couple of articles. What did you see interesting uh, either from the data itself or as Carrie Penman uh, talked about, is this really a wake-up call for companies? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. We've been watching these individually, but it's staggering to see this in the aggregate, the, you know, the full report and the number of $564 million in this last year, which is more than all of the previous uh, years combined, which is amazing. Um, and so it's it's not a, something to, you know, forget about or, you know, this is this is still very much a robust area. Um, for the you know cottage industry of whistleblower um, plaintiffs here, whistleblower whistleblowers themselves, uh, I think what Carrie's uh, article mentioned that I thought was the most interesting is this statistic about who is reporting internally versus who is reporting um, out to the SEC first. And she says, according to the report, that seventy five percent of the award recipients. In fiscal year 2021, first raise their concerns internally, meaning to supervisors or compliance uh, personnel or through some other sort of internal reporting method or channel. Um, But that is lower than it historically has been. It's usually about 80%. And while that decrease might not seem wildly significant, it is a decrease. And so she sort of questions where that maybe is coming from, what is driving that. Um, and so she, I, I appreciated that she tried to, to, to suss out what is happening and why are, um, why are these employees first reporting outside instead of uh, inside. And so she even she phrases it as, why do these employers fail to address or come to a, a resolution internally? I mean, I think she answers her own question a little bit later by saying, you know, well, look at these numbers. Look what happens if you go report to the SEC. And when these numbers get big and there's a lot of press on them, it seems clear that maybe there's a significant incentive to raise this um, to the SEC or to, to go that route rather than uh, internally only. Um, but I, I, I actually think this, this was a great article of trying to get to dig into these numbers, which, as you mentioned, aren't new numbers, but to see this sort of in, its, in the final year report uh, was, still, it was still somewhat um, surprising. I guess uh, the other th- thing that struck me, Karen, is we now have uh, whistleblower awards uh, enacted in the AML law of 2020. Uh, CFTC had a very large whistleblower award. And there seems to be a movement, at least at the federal government level, that this is a good thing and we're going to incorporate this into a variety of laws. And I'm wondering if it's really going to lead to just an explosion of whistleblowing and whistleblower awards uh, paid out. And the the other thing is that the plaintiff's bar who have handled these 
Early on, it was typically ex-SEC lawyers, sometimes who came from the office of the whistleblower, sometimes who'd worked on the whistleblower law. And I felt uh, kind of a great comfort level from them that they would vet claims and present claims that they thought merited consideration. Um, as, as we move out to greater and greater awards and greater numbers of awards, I'm sort of wondering, will a wider plaintiff's bar who perhaps does not have SEC securities law experience start bringing claims and, and really clog up a system that has a lot of tips reported to their hotline? Yeah, I think the number of tips and sort of how overwhelming that is, which I can only imagine will increase once these, you know, once people realize the the potential bounty that's available. Um, you're right. If there isn't a, either an internal reporting mechanism that's used, and in addition to that, maybe that there aren't plaintiffs' attorneys sort of saying, "Hey, that's probably not," you know, sort of counseling clients to to only be reporting more meritorious claims. Then you're right. I mean, it could easily overwhelm um, the SEC's office of the whistleblower. So, Karen, our next story comes to Jim Deloach writing in uh, Corporate Compliance Insights, and he takes a look at diversity at the top. And um, I have to start by telling my favorite story from I did a podcast called Compliance and Coronavirus, and I interviewed someone who is formerly very high up at Homeland Security, and now she's a consulting at a consultant at a major consulting firm. And we got to the topic of diversity at the board, and she had the greatest answer I've ever seen because I won't name her because uh, this was an audio podcast and I could see what she did, but she threw her head back and just put her face right in front of the camera and said, if they ain't finding them, it's because they ain't looking. And I thought that was the best answer I'd ever heard about, uh, you know, white, stale, and male board members. And in the energy industry, that's, uh, you know, pretty ubiquitous. Uh, So you kind of start with that. uh, But Jim really lays out steps to help companies think through how to look. And he points out it's not just, oh, we have a board opening, let's require a retain a recruiter who will find us a diverse candidate. It's a process. You build a pipeline. You have a, a large number of people or some number of people you've interviewed. You talk to and communicate to the senior executives and even into the company, the board's commitment to diversity and that the board will promote candidates, uh, diverse candidates, uh, even up from the employee ranks or perhaps senior management ranks. And that is it is not simply a one time. Let's just go out and find a woman, find a gay, find an ethnically diverse candidate. It is we're going to have a pipeline of people. We're going to have a pipeline of qualified people. We're not going to be like the CEO of Wells Fargo and says, well, gosh, where could I find someone who's good enough to be at Wells Fargo? Um, guess what? They're out there. Um, and uh, But Jim really laid out a way to think through that on a process basis, and he really encourages companies to start putting that same sort of process rigor around DEI at the board level that they would any other uh, issue that we've talked about here. So we end with, uh, I'm a huge fan of classical Athens. I love ancient Greek history. And I found a story uh, that uh, talked about uh, defining corruption from a classical Athenian perspective. Uh, It was from uh, Kellum Conover in Global Anti-Corruption Blog. What did you see in here that may or may not have intrigued you? 
Well, I will say I love Global Anti-Corruption uh, blog and have, and, you know, tangled back and forth with um, Matthew Stevenson who <laughs> runs this from, for years now. So I always am interested to hear what he has to say. And I love how broad the topics can be. I also will say that when I saw this story, I said, that is very Tom Fox. <laughs> so I'm not at all surprised that this was added in here. Uh, fascinating article about, you know, with all this history about how, um, what bribery meant in ancient Greece and how there were different uh, methods for handling different types of bribery. So uh, enforcement was uh, dependent on what type of bribery or what type of uh, um, authoritative, uh, uh, I guess, if it, were you bribing a juror, were you bribing a judge, were you bribing an elected official, those things would then um, shift the way the enforcement would, would be run. And so that was also interesting. So as opposed to a, a writ large or broad understanding of corruption or bribery in, to, in any form, that they had more specific um, bodies to handle different types of corruption, which I, they said, you know, allowed for them to be well-suited to decide and legitimate whether, um, you know, whether the, the result of the bribe was something that was considered bad or not. I did think that was interesting. He did say that the bribery, you know, they allowed gifts, and really it was almost an ex post that if the gifts outcome was bad, I guess meaning some sort of corruption, self-dealing, whatever it is, that that's when it became problematic, which I thought that was an interesting way to see that. I don't know if you read it that the same way. You know, I was just fascinated with the nuance that the ancient Greeks put on this, and there's, you know, you name the example from Greek history, from Socrates to the Olympic races to the Delphic Oracle, uh, there was always a, a gift involved of, of some sort. Uh, this article was in the context of this, I think, about six-week debate in GAB on how do you define corruption. And uh, as the son of a professor, I can appreciate academic debate, and you're an academic, so I know you can appreciate it. And it's been really fun to watch uh just uh, the act, I've seen academic fireworks going off uh, because I understand the code words in academia. Uh, uh, and people in the, in the real world might not see the relevance, but I think it is relevant because um, academia gives us some of the basic definitions that we then move to other areas in. And the one thing that I think Matthew has been very good at pointing out is there is no clear definition and that we may talk across purposes from each other, and we really need to try to figure out some some way that we can, if not define it, perhaps ring fits it in a way that uh, the people on the front lines actually have to apply uh, what the academics uh, come up with uh, can utilize. But for me, it's you're absolutely right. It's just been fascinating, and this article just capstoned it for me. So, Kara, we had a lot of podcasts this week. I did a... Uh, podcast series on Lyme disease. I really, uh, living in the South, it's not something I'd really experience, but uh, Ross Duhat, the uh, conservative commentator at the New York Times, has just come out with a book on his journey through Lyme disease. So uh, Ben Lockwin and Scott Endicott, two epidemiologists, uh, Scott's actually suffers from Lyme disease. So we had a great five-part podcast series. If you have anyone you've suffered from it or you have a loved one, it's a great series. Uh, We're near the end of the great series on effing Argentina about exasperation. And and this is a story that every person who's either been a child or a parent can appreciate. It's a trip down the freeway 
you know, to grandma's house or some other house on the holidays. It's a five-hour trip. It's late at night because you your dad's just gotten off work, and you got to stop and buy food. Everybody wants something different. Then you got to stop and go to the bathroom. And how dad, nearly at the end of it, uh, his wife comes in and calms everybody down and saves the day. So it's a great trip on the New Jersey Turnpike. In The Compliance Life, we had episode three with Wendy Badger. Wendy moved into the CCO chair, so she talks about that. And uh, if you're interested, uh, my book is still for sale, The Compliance Handbook, second edition. So, Karen, that really uh, takes us up to um, the uh, the end of this podcast. Next week, we will not be on for the Thanksgiving holiday. So you want to wish all our listeners happy Thanksgiving? Absolutely. Happy Thanksgiving to all the listeners. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you'll check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan, where Gwen looks at the international scourge of human trafficking, and more importantly, the response a corporation and compliance professional can make to help fight this scourge. Once again, Hidden Traffic, hosted by Gwen Hassan on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.